I want to welcome those joining us over Facebook and our YouTube channel. God bless you. Happy Sabbath this morning. It's good to be with you. We're about to get started into a a very, uh, I, I consider very uh, present truth message here this Sabbath morning. And uh, we want to understand the time that we're living in. And we can learn many things from the life of Jesus and that closing, the closing scenes of his life. They shed a lot of light onto what the remnant of God will be going through uh, here in the end times. And so we want to get started with that here before we do, however, we want to have a season of prayer. So I invite you to bow your heads with me and let's come before our Father in heaven. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for this Holy Sabbath day, the opportunity we have as your faithful followers to come together on this most holy day to sing praises to you, to thank you from our hearts for all that you do for us from a heart of love. We recognize that you indeed, as John says, are love. We thank you so much for that. We thank you for the heavenly angels you send to help us each and every moment of every day and that you have provided a way for us to escape this sin problem. And that is that you gave your son Jesus uh, to, to us for all eternity to show us how to live a righteous life and overcoming sin and how to live in the kingdom and be a citizen of, you, of the kingdom forever. And Lord, we're so very thankful for that, and we sing you praises. Father, we pray this morning for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon your people. Help us, Lord, to have understanding and wisdom, and above all, to to have this love, your love in our hearts, uh, to, to have this love grow so that we may demonstrate to our families, our friends, our neighbors, and the world the love of Jesus for them. And so, Father, we pray also in the name of Jesus that you forgive us our sins. We pray that the Holy Spirit will help us to be the overcomers that you wish all to be. And help us to understand this study as we open your word this morning. And we look at those closing scenes of Jesus. We look at the trials here. We pray that you will give us discernment and wisdom and help us to have a right understanding and rightly divide the word of truth. Please be with those on our prayer lists. Lord, help keep them uh, in your hand and heal them according to thy will until we all can see Jesus coming in the clouds and, and hear those fantastic words that we all wish to hear. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I humbly pray this in the name of Jesus who is so worthy to be praised. Amen. Amen. And, uh, and amen. Well, <clears throat> friends, I've entitled this particular study, uh, Enduring the Trials. Enduring the Trials. And in our studies we've seen, and those who are familiar with the, the, the Gospels know, in the closing scenes of Jesus, that Jesus suffered alone. He suffered alone. And we're to follow him, as we've learned in this series, we're to follow him wherever he goes. As it says in Revelation 14.4, These are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. So, knowing that Jesus suffered, friends, and he also suffered alone, do you think that we will be called upon to suffer and to also suffer alone? So, it's a good question for us to think about, isn't it? And it helps to prepare us. And this is something that Peter said to us 
We read it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. Peter said, For even hereunto were ye called, he says, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, how did he react, friends? Reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And so Jesus has left us the example, hasn't he? And because he left us an example, we want to study now the trials of Jesus. For he had quite a number, didn't he? And we want to know the reasons for those repeated trials before the courts of earth. We want to note the parallel in the coming crisis of the, the remnant people of God with those trials that Jesus went through so that we can be prepared or as prepared, really, as we can be, to react as Jesus did with nobility and glory to the Father. And we want to endure these trials as Jesus endured them. Amen? Because, friends, like Jesus, we too will be seized by the mob. Like Jesus, we shall be thrown into trials. Like Jesus, we shall suffer the results of the combination of church and state uniting to inflict persecution upon God's followers. And like Jesus, we want to endure the trials. And like Jesus, we want to be victorious. Do we not? I think we do. Amen? And as we prepare, we shall need to have very clear, friends, in our minds to, to the... To these questions, we need to answer these questions like, why does God permit all this? Why would God allow human beings to torture his children in such ways? Why would he allow them to be stretched on the rack, to be burned at the stake or, or decapitated? Why would he permit them to be insulted and abused, tortured in every way, friends, that men and devils can invent? And that's what lies ahead for the remnant people. Now, it's very evident that God permitted all that men and devils could think of back there in Gethsemane, you know, in the judgment halls at Calvary. Why would God permit that? And why will he permit it again as the remnant people come under trial? Now, I'm sure there's a number of reasons, friends. Uh, the reason that I would have you think about uh, in this study is this. God is allowing these things to make a demonstration. He's making a demonstration. Now think about that. To, to make a demonstration of what? Well, I want you to mull over that. God wants to make a demonstration here. I want you to mull over that as we go on. Think about that. Put that in the back of your mind there and call, contemplate that as we as we go forward here. Now as far as the the death of Jesus is concerned. You know, there are many ways in which Christ might have died. Do you realize that? He might have died right there in Gethsemane. That's where and when all the sins of the world were laid upon him as our substitute. Right? And he nearly died right there as he sweat great drops of blood, his own blood in the garden. And would that not have been enough of a sacrifice for humanity? Well, it could have been. But he didn't die there, did he? He might have been executed by the mob who came to get in 
and died right after Jesus, Judas there betrayed him with a kiss. He might have died right there. They might have stuck him with a sword or done whatever and, and killed him right there. Would his death right then have saved mankind? It could have. But he didn't die there, did he? He might have been led at once to the place of execution and crucified quickly instead of being brought before the church and then the Roman state for trial. This too could have been enough to save mankind from the penalty of sin. But he didn't die such a quick and private execution, did he? You see, my friends, there was a reason for all the delays and experiences. There was a demonstration that had to be made to all of creation. And that's what this text in 1 Peter chapter 2 is saying to us. And the text indicates also that, that you and I are called to a similar experience, you see. Similar, but of course not exact, in that we're not taking upon our shoulders, you know, the sins of all mankind like Jesus did. What is it that God wants to demonstrate well, friends, he wants to demonstrate that divine love can be revealed in human flesh, forgiving its enemies and praying for its persecutors. He wants to reveal before all creation his divine love exhibited in a generation of people so that all doubts as to his love and character will be removed for eternity. God needs to demonstrate this in a generation of people because Satan can still make the argument, and in fact he still does, that of course Jesus could overcome sin because he was God after all. We have major uh, religions of today that teach that. I mean, after all, look at James 1 and verse 13. What's it tell us? It says, God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So, of course, Jesus could never be tempted like man is tempted. So, who could he really have saved, Satan asks. Satan's argument still remains that God, God's law is unfair and impossible to keep as man still continues to sin. But Jesus was the mystery of divinity and humanity combined. And all those who follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth, friends, will also have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as he did. So there must be a demonstration, you see, by a generation of people that what Jesus has done in becoming human, overcoming sin as a human, and dying for the sins of all humanity was not done in vain. There will be a generation of people, and the Bible calls them the remnant, that will uphold the original covenant between God and man. And that original covenant was what? Obey and what? Live. Just as Jesus upheld it, you see, by being obedient to God's holy Ten Commandments. And that's what vindicates the character of the Godhead in creating mankind. It will be safe then, you see, to have humans as citizens of God's kingdom again, for sin will not ever arise ever again. And this last generation of his people proves it to all creation. They demonstrate, you see, to all creation their love and obedience to God. And let me tell you, friends, to have a generation of people that demonstrate the love and character of God takes more than a work of a moment. 
God does not wave a magic wand and change our character in a moment any more than Jesus used his own divinity to overcome all that Satan threw at him to entice him to sin. As Peter said to us, 1 Peter 2, verse 21, he said, For even hereunto were ye called, he said, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that what? You should follow his steps. It would be impossible for us to follow in his steps if he was solely God and not God in our flesh as an example of what God can do in us. This godly character work that will demonstrate to all that divine love can be revealed in human flesh, forgiving its enemies and praying for its persecutors takes effort and takes time to develop. It's been called by the Bible sanctification, you see. It's a process of being made holy. But God has been working with man in preparation for this final demonstration for over 6,000 years. And we're so very close to reaching it. We're very close. And the devil knows that we are very close. So he is pulling out all the stops, you see, friends, to defeat this last generation of God's people, this remnant that he is angry with and so makes war against. So as we allow God to work in, in us, let me ask you very simply. We see what's coming ahead. Those of us who are, are prophecy students, we know what's coming ahead. How long can you hold out against the wiles of the devil and the enticements of the world? Are you enduring the trials of life? Have you ever heard a person um, who may be relating some experience, you know, that they, they were going through and they said, I stood it as long as I could. Have you ever heard that before? Well, I've not only heard that expression, I've said it before. I stood it as long as I could. You know, and I was thinking about that. And I think we need to get that kind of thinking out of our minds. We'll need to get all such thoughts erased out of our character work, friends. We must replace these kinds of thoughts with scriptures of our trust and confidence in God to help us endure such things. You know, scriptures like 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we're very familiar with. There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Or Matthew 19, 26. That Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, with God all things are possible. Or Mark 9.23, Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believe. And as Jesus prayed there in the garden of Gethsemane, he too claimed such promises for himself ever being our example in all things. In Mark 14, 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me, nevertheless not what I will, but what thou wilt. In John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that ab abideth in me, 
and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do almost everything. Without me you can do nothing. And so it's the remnant people, those who follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth, that cling to such promises and believe that without Jesus they can do nothing. And concerning those who follow the Lamb, in this closing hour of earth's history, it's written in Revelation 14, 12, we're familiar with it, here is the patience of the saints. How many times have you read that? Do you understand what's being said there? I find it interesting that another translation puts it this way. Here is an opportunity for endurance on the part of God's people. And let me tell you, certainly it will be an opportunity for endurance. And if you and I are ready, as Jesus was ready, friends, we will be able to give the same demonstration that he gave, vindicating our Father's law, his character, as Jesus did. Amen? But let us learn what's coming ahead for the remnant people by the, the parallel scene and the experiences that Jesus went through from his midnight seizure by the mob there at Gethsemane up until he was being sent to Calvary in the early hours of that next morning. Let's look and see at the parallels that may exist. That's right, for I believe they do. And it's a warning for us to get prepared. Do you know how many times, friends, Jesus was arraigned before earthly tribunals during those hours? Seven times. Seven times. Once before Ananias. Once before Caiaphas. Twice before the Sanhedrin. Then before Pilate. Then Herod. And back again to Pilate. That makes seven times. Seven times he faced his accusers and persecutors. And as we look at these times of trial for Jesus and compare them to the history of his people, we can see a pattern or, or a parallel between the two. And as you've heard me say, friends, uh, a number of times, there are only two spirits in this world. The spirit of Christ and the spirit of Antichrist. And the battle between them has been waged since the rebellion began in heaven and then upon this earth. So it's no stretch of the imagination to think there is a pattern of behavior and thus a parallel between the treatment of Christ and the treatment of his followers by the Antichrist. Remember how, in a previous study, remember how Jesus had warned the disciples uh, uh, several times to prepare for his coming crisis and thus their crisis? And the problem was that, that they missed the warnings and they failed to prepare he has laid out before us, friends, warnings as well, and we will miss them and if we're not prepared, if we're not looking, if we're not searching, if we don't have the spiritual eye sap, we will be as those disciples. We will be caught unprepared. Or will we heed these warnings and be prepared to meet the crisis as Jesus did? Let me give you an example. <clears throat> this is just one time that Jesus was laying out before the disciples to help prepare them for what was coming ahead. I want to read a good portion of Matthew chapter 10 and see what we can pick up that will help us for our crisis that's coming. And I believe we'll see parallels, not only in this example of his followers, uh, 
back then compared to us today, but also what happened directly to him and thus will happen to his followers today. Matthew 10, let's begin with verse 16. It says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Well, do we not experience that today? I'll tell you, I do. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Now notice, who first comes after them? Now I'll get to the more into this in just a moment. But it's the councils and and, and the, the synagogues. That means the churches, right? And then it's the governors and kings to be a testimony to the unbelievers, the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. That day is coming, friends. But he that endureth these trials, right? He that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man become. That means we're always to be missionaries. Always to be spreading the gospel. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light. And what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? You notice what Jesus is doing here? <clears throat> he's giving these warnings, and then he's comforting. He's bringing comfort. I will not leave you. God loves you while you go through this. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Whosoever there, <clears throat> therefore shall confess, confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. That's sad, isn't it? And he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Now as we read these words of Jesus, friends, does he not lay it all out for us in, 
in, in what his people will, will experience in the final crisis? And where, I mentioned it as we were reading, where does it start, our crisis? Well, it starts with us exactly where it started with Jesus. And we can see through history how it started with the professed church of God bringing persecution upon the true followers, the faithful. And friends, I'm not sharing anything new. It's all right there in history. <coughs> Excuse me. Who was it that first brought accusations against Jesus? Was it Rome? Or was it the professed church? It was the professed church that accused Jesus and wanted to put him to death. Why did the church want to accuse Jesus? Because, friends, he exposed their infidelities and sins. And this was most evident by the traditions they built upon the Sabbath command. If you do a study about that, you'll see that it's true. Look at Luke chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? And looking round about them all, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored whole as the other. And they were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. Now, when it says that they were filled with madness, it means that these men were out of their minds with rage. They were filled with fury. And that fury and rage was akin to insanity. That's what the word means there. And does that remind you of the behavior we see with some of the groups condemning and protesting righteousness today? This insanity? This rage? I believe utter insanity. Just as it says in Isaiah 5, verse 20 and 21, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And friends, we look around today and the world is turned upside down. Truth lies dying in the street. But we are the followers of Christ. We are the called out ones, friends. We're called out to speak the truth of Jesus. Let us do that by being motivated by our love for Him. Amen? So the Jewish leaders were enraged at Jesus for not treating their traditions as though they were the law of God, especially the Sabbath command. John chapter 5, verse 16 and therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. You see, the church leaders believed that Jesus was speaking against the law of God, especially the Sabbath. Uh, and, and, and as he endorsed doing good, you see, and healing on the holy day instead of following the rigid counsels of the rabbis. They wanted to kill Jesus. And they were looking for a way to do it that would give it the look of piety to all the people. <coughs> Earlier in his ministry, they had tried to condemn him as a Sabbath breaker, if you recall. But they miserably failed. Let me read this to you from the book, The Desire of Ages, page 538. 
The miracles he performed on the Sabbath were all for the relief of the afflicted. But the Pharisees had sought to condemn him as a Sabbath breaker. They had tried to arouse the Herodians against him. They represented that he was seeking to set up a rival kingdom and consulted with them how to destroy him. To excite the Romans against him, they had represented him as trying to subvert their authority. They had tried every pretext to cut him off from influencing the people, but so far their attempts had been foiled. Notice, she says, The multitudes who witnessed his works of mercy and heard his pure and holy teachings knew that these were not the deeds and words of a Sabbath breaker or blasphemer. Let me ask you, who betrayed Jesus? Was it a church member or a Roman soldier? Who came to get Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane? A mob from the professed church or Roman soldiers? Think about it. Where did the mob take Jesus first? To Pilate? Or to Ananias, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin? These were all church councils and judges. And we see this paralleled, friends, in the 1260 years of persecution during the Dark Ages. Who was bringing accusations against God's people during that time? It was the professed church, wasn't it? The Roman Catholic Church. Where were they brought uh, for trial first? Before prelates and priests. Look at any Protestant reformer during those years and you'll see that they were first accused by the professed church and brought before church councils. I mean, look at it. Wycliffe, Huss, Jerome. They were accused by the professed church and brought before church councils. Martin Luther, accused by the professed church and first brought before church councils. Paralleling what happened to their Savior. Now think about the remnant people. <laughs> and who will first bring accusations against them? Will it be the professed church or civil authority, do you suppose? And what will the professed church accuse these remnant people of God of doing? Will it not be the breaking of the false Sabbath, Sunday? Can you see the parallel, friends, with the closing scenes of Christ? Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 to 61. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. So Matthew here says, that there were false witnesses that the church brought in to testify against Jesus. Now, friends, these were professional spies and informants that the church paid to find something to bring against Jesus so they could put him to death. Do you think there are spies that are watching God's people today? I guarantee it. These false brethren are going to present a case against the faithful remnant based upon so-called evidence they have already collected, friends. And most testimonies from false witnesses will be from former brethren. 
Notice this. This is from the 1888 materials, page 71. We shall have to come through trying places, for there will be spies watching on our track and lying in wait for us. We shall not only be brought before councils, but we shall be thrust into prison. We must be in that advanced position of faith that we shall know God and the power of his grace where we can lift up holy hands to him without wrath and doubting. And we must learn how to believe that God hears us. Will there be false witnesses brought against us? Yes. Are there spies watching us? Yes. Let us not doubt God. But we see in the gospel accounts that the testimony of these false witnesses against Jesus was not working. Because their testimony was too often conflicted. And Caiaphas knew he was losing his opportunity to condemn Jesus, you see. So he went to a different tactic. And that was to try to get Jesus to admit to something that would condemn himself. Can you believe it? Look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 to 66. But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? And they answered and said, He's guilty of death. Make no mistake, friends. They wanted to accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath as that could be spun into the charge of blasphemy. But they were afraid to do that because this would expose themselves and ruin their intentions. They had tried that before, remember? Notice this, Desire of Ages, page 705. Christ's enemies dared not accuse him of Sabbath-breaking, lest an examination should reveal the character of his work. If his miracles of healing were brought to light, the very object of the priest would be defeated. You see, they then accused him of speaking against the temple. And this could get Rome against him as they also venerated the temple as the Jews did. They actually helped with the temple. It was like a treasure to them, see? But these false witnesses still were too conflicted. It brought a bunch of confusion to the council. So finally, they accused Jesus of blasphemy. And the church falsely convicted him of blasphemy. But that would not be enough to have him executed by Rome, you see. They must condemn him of breaking the two parts of God's holy law in order to get Rome involved. Well, how's that possible, Pastor Joel? Well, the two parts of God's law represented to them the church and the state the state being filled by Rome at that time. So the theocracy then was the Jewish church and the state of Rome. And this is the same system we see in the professed church today. And this is why we see the papacy as a church-state organization. 
This is what the image of the beast is, church and state working together. The first four commands of God's law deals with our relationship to God. Thus, it's represented as the church, you see. And the last six commands of that law deals with our relationship with men. Thus, is represented by the civil government. The professed church accused Jesus of breaking the entire law. Thus, he was against the church and the state, you see. He was accused of blasphemy by the church and sedition by the state of Rome. So, Jesus was brought before church councils first. Then he was brought before the civil authority. He was falsely convicted of blasphemy by the church and sedition by Rome. Look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? Pilate wasn't asking him a question on doctrine or God's commands, was he? He's asking him if he was a king. That's competition with Caesar. Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. And so we can see a parallel here, friends, with Jesus and what was done to his faithful followers in the Dark Ages even. Those Faithful souls, back then, they were convicted by the church and then convicted by the state, and it was the state who carried out the sentence. They too suffered the most terrible of tortures, as did the Savior. Will this same thing be seen by the remnant of God during the closing scenes? Absolutely. They will be accused and convicted by the church and the state and suffer persecution just as Jesus and the faithful did before them. Back to 1888 materials, this time page 484. They will be brought before kings and rulers and before councils to meet the false, absurd, and lying accusations brought against them. But they must stand firm as a rock to principle. And the promise is, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. Deuteronomy 33:25. You will not be tempted above what you are able to bear. Jesus bore all this and far more. And friends, in the intervals between these private and public arraignments, Jesus was subjected to insult, abuse, torture. Twice the terrible scourge was laid across his back, lash after lash, cutting his flesh down to the bone. And friends, that in and of itself, is an incredible testimony to the physical health of Jesus that he endured not just one, but two scourgings. That's 78 lashes. The vast majority of men died after one scourging. Incredible. And the Roman soldiers mocked him arrayed him in a purple robe, crowned him with a wreath of thorns, and mockingly bowed before him as if he were a king. The ignorant rabble, the rude mob, insulted him in every way. You know, there's a text in Isaiah that gives us a, a, a glimpse of some of the suffering of Jesus. 
It's interesting how there are some things in the life of Jesus, I think, that are more definitely pictured in the Old Testament than they are in the New Testament. But Isaiah 15, verse 6, it says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Friends, they jerked the hair right off his face and spat on him. Rude. Full of the spirit of the devil. And while Jesus was revealing God-like patience and forgiving love, the devil was giving through his servants the supreme demonstration of the cruelty and malignity of sin. And this same demonstration will be done again. And I want to say to you that Satan is studying your character and he's taking notes on what he finds. He's studying to find the particular thing that will make you lose your patience, that will make you lose your temper. And with some, some it's going to take torture. With others, it just takes ridicule. And with others, something else. Whatever it is, Satan is finding it out. He's laying his plans. And we ought to be wise enough to study our own weak points as the devil studies them, friends. So let's take those promises we read about earlier and get busy with Jesus and make our weak points our strong points so when the devil finally comes, he'll view us with amazement because we'll be a fortress impregnable to all his efforts for we've been fortified by the experience and work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Because that's the way it was with Jesus. In John 14, verse 30, the Savior put it this way, The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. There was in him nothing that responded to Satan's temptations. And if you and I will get into the experience with God and he that heaven wants, that they want us to have, we can come up to our crisis hour and give the demonstration that God wants us to give. Great Controversy, page 623. Now, while our great high priest is making the atonement for us, we should seek to become perfect in Christ. Not even by a thought could our Savior be brought to yield to the power of temptation. Satan finds in human hearts some point where he can gain a foothold. Some sinful desire is cherished by means of which his temptations assert their power. But Christ declared of himself, The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. This is the condition in which those must be found who shall stand in the time of trouble. I want to stand, don't you, friends? I want to get all the irritation and, and all the impatience out of me. I want to be able to meet the mob and give the exhibition that Jesus did, don't you? We've already been studying that Jesus came from prayer to meet them. And we need to know the Father as He knew the Father. Then we'll be able to say as Jesus did, the cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? We see some of that in the dark ages and these reformers that were put to death. They met that challenge as Jesus did, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Huss was singing praises to God while burning on the stake. It's un unbelievable, almost. Christ knew as he faced these persecutors that his father would not allow one single blow. 
one single insulting remark without first weighing it to see whether it would be good for the plan of salvation, for the salvation of souls. That was why Jesus rested in His Father's arms. All through that disgraceful farce of a trial, as hour after hour of torture went on, He knew that His Father was managing things. He didn't try to interfere. He didn't try to defend Himself. He didn't get angry, neither did He get discouraged. He didn't wilt. He did not become cowed. You know, Today we see different groups, different camps of this world practicing on one another. You know that? Atheists and, and, and Roman Catholics and evangelicals and communists and liberals and conservatives and anarchists and regates and bigots, etc., etc., are all engaged in a great world duel. And there are all kinds of efforts made to fight each other and deal with each other. We see it every day, don't we? And one of the techniques that's been developed to near perfection over the years is what's called brainwashing or mind control. And these techniques, friends, they're found everywhere. They're found everywhere in the world, even in the church. And the devil has used all these groups, you see, to perfect these techniques for what purpose, do you suppose? To use on his followers and the people of the world? Or maybe to use on the remnant people of God. What do you think? And it's going to be a great surprise as the powers of this world led by the devil find some people that no amount of torture, physical, mental, or spiritual can cause them to wilt. It's going to be a great surprise, I believe, to have a people demonstrate the love of God so much that they would rather suffer such things and die than sin against their Heavenly Father. Desire of Ages, page 508. As priests and rulers combined against them and they were brought before councils and thrust into prison, the followers of Christ rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. They rejoiced to prove before men and angels that they recognized the glory of Christ and chose to follow Him at the loss of all things. And it'll take a miracle of God. Because the torturers of this age will have at their hand not only all the weapons of the past, but all kinds of new weapons. Chemical weapons, drug weapons, uh, physiological weapons, all sorts of things that we know very little of concerning the mind sciences. So we will need a mind, not like we have now, but one like Jesus had. Amen? As Paul said in Philippians 2, verses 3 to 8, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And thank God, friends, we don't need to know all about the techniques of the devil in order to overcome them. But there's one thing we 
We need to know. We find it in Daniel chapter 11, among other places, but this is speaking about the, the secret of the success of the, the Waldenses and, and the others in the Dark Ages who gave their witness for God in those days of bloody persecution. And it will be true again for those who stand for God in the last crisis hour, friends. Daniel chapter 11, verses 32 and 33. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall be corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many. Yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. What is the secret of strength so that the people of God will do exploits so they may fall by the sword and flame or captivity? Knowing God and implicitly trusting in Him. You see, Jesus knew His Father. So whether He was meeting the rabble, the, the cunning priests, the, the vacillating Pilate, the cruel Herod, or those rough soldiers in their work of torture and execution, to them all He revealed God in the flesh. And that great mystery of godliness is to be demonstrated again by His remnant people. God is to have here on earth a, a whole group of people, thousands of them, a little flock compared to the billions of this world, but enough to make a grand demonstration that there is power in Jesus to make a man loving and meek and patient under the most awful circumstances ever to be brought upon a human being. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, it was prophesied of Jesus He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Can you do that, friends? There are some things, you know, in my experience, there are some things at times harder to bear than the rude blow of a rough mob. To have people lie about you may be harder than to have them hit you in the face. Jesus had all that. False witnesses were testifying against him before the Sanhedrin and before the, before the court of Pilate. But like a lamb, like a sheep, he was dumb. Not through cowardice, but in calm courage. And I admit that I don't have anything like that naturally. What about you? But I thank God that He has promised to get us ready for those experiences if we'll let Him get us ready, friends. And I found here a most interesting statement as to how God is getting us ready for those, those days, those martyr days ahead. And, and maybe you'll be interested to know that these words that I'm about to read were spoken by, by Sister White in the Valley of the Waldenses. Over there amid those towering peaks of the Alps where the martyrs for God had laid down their lives. Notice the words that she says here. It's from Historical Sketches, page 233. She says, God does not give us the spirit of the martyrs today, for we have not come to the point of martyrdom. He is now testing us by smaller trials and crosses. 
And at times when it seems that the billows of temptation will go over our heads, let us remember that the eye of God is watching over us. And let us be willing to endure all the trials he sees fit to send. You see, dear friends, <laughs> my granddaughter's with us this weekend. And you know, children, when you're teaching them, you can, you, they can learn, let's say, they can learn math with pennies just as well as they can with dollar bills, can't they? God is using the same principle with us, friends. You and I can learn to be patient and rely on God with these little trials and these petty difficulties and these tiny irritations that we have from day to day. We can learn to depend on Jesus and to reveal His love, can't we? And if we'll learn it with pennies, God will help us carry it out with tens and hundreds and thousands of dollars, so to speak. I mean that the terrible trials that are ahead can be met and will be met with the same grace that sustains us now in these little difficulties of daily life. Can you see how important that makes the daily life? Do you see how important it makes it for us to gain the victory in the daily things of life? For if we fail now, what will we do then? As God said through Jeremiah 12, verse 5, He said, If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, what will you do when you must contend with horses? If we're willing to run with the footmen now, friends, God will develop us to the place where we can contend with the horses when that time comes. And I want to stress the point before I close up here in a few minutes. That we're going to be brought before the tribunals as Jesus was, for we will be representing him as his follower. Notice this quote from Review and Herald, December 18, 1888. It does not seem possible to us now that any should have to stand alone. But if God has ever spoken by me, the time will come when we shall be brought before councils and before the before thousands for his name's sake, and each one will have to give the reason of his faith. Then will come the severest criticism upon every position that has been taken for the truth. Here's another interesting statement. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 463. The members of the church will individually be tested and proved. They will be placed in circumstances where they will be forced to bear witness for the truth. Many will be called to speak before councils and in courts of justice, perhaps separately and alone. If you and I believe this, friends, what will we do? We'll do what Joseph did down in Egypt, right? When he knew his family was coming, he stored up. And we should be storing up the Bible in our minds and hearts now because I, I don't think that they'll guarantee to furnish us Bibles when they put us in the dungeon, do you? <laughs> It'll be a wonderful thing if we can draw on the Word in our minds, won't it? Not only just memorize the words, though, friends. I mean, that's part of it. But ask God to teach its meaning. That when the time comes that we're examined, His Spirit will be able to bring to our remembrance the truths and answer the questions that are given to us. And if we're faithful in that, do you know what's going to happen? 
why some of the great men of the earth are going to step out and take their stand right at that time. Won't that be a wonderful thing? Notice this, the Great Controversy, page 607. As the movement for Sunday enforcement becomes more bold and decided, the law will be invoked against commandment keepers. They will be threatened with fines and imprisonment. The, <coughs> excuse me. Those who are arraigned before the courts make a strong vindication of the truth, and some who hear them are led to take their stand to keep all the commandments of God. Thus light will be brought before thousands who otherwise would know nothing of these truths. Won't it be wonderful to see something like that? And God's going to use perhaps some humble witness that's called before the court that will speak the word that will send conviction to some judge, some some, some attorney, some legislature, uh, legislator, some governor maybe, or a senator, or somebody, some leader, and the seed that has been sown in their heart maybe from some time in the past, perhaps through maybe some literature that we handed out or or radio or television program or website. That's caused to spring up in that crisis hour through the ministration of the Holy Spirit. And he steps out and he says, this is the truth and I'm going to accept it. But you see, it depends upon God's people making the demonstration, giving the evidence of loyalty and love. Loyalty to God, love for his law, love for people, even their worst enemies. Never. Must there be an angry word, friends? Never a sarcastic look. Never taking the advantage of, of one's opponents by some twist of a word or, or, or some guile. <laughs> because in their mouths is found no guile, remember? But we're to have a sweet, calm, confident presentation that we can give of Christ's truth to all people. And in order to be ready at that time to give that demonstration, we need to be practicing now. And God is furnishing us the material to practice on, isn't he? That's what the trials and experiences of daily life are for. Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered, friends. We must learn obedience the same way today. This is a time for prayer. And we need help from God and God's promised to give it to us, hasn't he, friends? And when God's people seek him in this way and with all the heart we have a, a right to expect, you see, that right here and right now we're going to get special help from Jesus. Isn't that right? Can't we trust him? I say we can. Have you had the experience with Jesus to know that you can trust him with all things? If not, give it a try. Give him your whole heart. His promises are true, for he's faithful that promised, friends. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you so very, very much for this Holy Sabbath day and, and uh, this opportunity we have to come together here and study from your Holy Word. And Father, as we see the things that are coming uh, ahead for your people, we humbly ask for the Holy Spirit be poured out upon us. Help us to learn to uh, endure the trials of daily life in preparation for what's to come ahead so that we may be among those people that demonstrate to all creation that Jesus did not die in vain, that you, Father, are love 
and you are the embodiment and character of love and that your law shows that to be true. Help us to be obedient, not just today, but all the days ahead 